3. This morning we'll look at the end of Genesis 3. We've sort of been in the, in the middle of the chapter up to this point. And then we're going to jump forward in the Old Testament, not quite as far as we have in previous weeks. We're going to stop at the prophet Micah, which is just after the book of Jonah, and we'll look at a prophecy in Micah in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Little ones, let's begin with you again, young Christians, young theologians. We're going to talk about two places, so listen for the meanings of the names of those places. What do the names of each of these places mean? And then where is our place? In what place do we belong? And then there's one other question for you to listen for if you want a little bit more of a challenge. Listen for this. Why does God take things away from us sometimes? He does. He takes things away from us. But why? If you can answer that question, you will know something that many adults don't even know. So listen closely and see what you can hear. This is the good news from the book of Genesis and then from the prophet Micah. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And now from Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, From ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for your covenant, the structure in which unequals are married together. The God of holiness and power and truth stoops low and marries himself to a people of weakness and need through Jesus, the given Son. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have married beneath yourself. And in Jesus, we get to marry up and give to us again the good news that it was your eternal desire to have us as your people and that it was your willingness by your strength and all your gifts to remove the obstacles which stand in our way of union and closeness and intimacy with God, being known by him and knowing him, being forgiven by him, and enjoying Him forever. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. 
and allow us to rejoice in Jesus the Son. On a Sunday after a holiday which has worn us out, we pray, Lord, that you would give to us again the surprise of your gospel. Show us that there is much gospel for us here this morning in the liturgy and the songs that we sing. And now, Lord Jesus, as you preach yourself to us from these two passages, open our hearts and fill us with the love of God and thanksgiving to go along with it. If you'll do these things, we will give you thanks for them. We pray it all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? I wonder if after he was thrown out of the garden, Adam ever snuck up to the edge of it and looked back inside. There are always places that we're trying to leave, places that you can't wait to put behind you and hopefully forget. And there are always places that you're trying to get to or to get back to. You imagine yourself in these places. Life there would be so much better if only we could get to this place. And then there are places that surprise you. I remember when we were moving to Dallas from South Carolina, the moving van had gone on ahead of us. And so we had the remainder of our belongings packed in the car. We were loaded to the gills. The baby was strapped into the back seat. The dog was sprawled out next to her. And we were just about to pull out of the driveway. And we sat there and cried. I remember sitting there in the car, praying and weeping because we had hated that place. But Jesus had taught us so much there. And He had done so much in us there. And it was a surprising place because of all the ways Jesus had been faithful to us there. And as we drove away, we found we didn't hate it nearly so much as we had thought. And Bethlehem is a surprising place. But you can't feel the surprise of Bethlehem until we sneak back up to the edge of the garden and we look in and we cry with Adam just for a bit. The name of the place is significant. Adam, in different parts of Semitic language, means luxury or pleasure. So you can imagine the kind of place it was. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the garden isn't called by name. It's known by a synonym. It's called paradise, which in the semantic range of the word means enclosure. You could think of it as the ultimate gated community. It means park or pleasure ground. So the garden was a place of fullness, and that's what makes it such a place of loss. The garden was a place that was filled with every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food, we're told in chapter 2 of Genesis, in verse 9. The garden was an oasis, verse 10 tells us. 
It was well watered, the verse says. There was a river that flowed through the middle of it, and it wasn't a river like the Trinity, a trickle, barely there. You hardly need a bridge to get across it. This was more like the Amazon. So much river, so much water that it just threw off tributaries as it came. Four rivers, four full rivers divide off from it. The garden was a place of riches, we're told in verse 12. Gold and bdellium and onyx, precious stones and metals were found there in abundance. And then in verse 15, the garden was a place of creativity and productive work. Not toil, but work. Everything the man set out to do had the desired outcome. Work was a joy, not a chore. And the garden was a place where there were no death or conflict or hostility or hardship. That is, until the man and the woman rejected the word of God and they tried to judge good from evil for themselves by taking of the tree that God had prohibited. In effect, the man and the woman said, what God has determined for us is evil. And what we decide for ourselves is good, which is the end of any paradise and the birth of every hell. And in mercy, God does this unusual thing. He cuts them off from the second tree in the middle of the garden. Feels like a curse as you read through the chapter, but it's not. It's love. So first, God covers their sin with skins. He sheds blood, promises to cover all their offenses. And then he sets an angel in front of the tree with a flaming sword that flashes back and forth to cut the man and the woman off should they ever try to eat from the tree of life. Because if they eat from this tree, they'll be forever stuck in a state of fallenness and sin with no hope of redemption. And it's love and mercy that speaks to us the strange word in verse 23 that God sent the man out of the garden. And in the very next verse, it gets a little bit more intense. The Lord God drove the man out of the garden. But don't be mistaken, it means redemption is coming. Salvation is in store for the man and the woman who had ruined everything by their own pride and their own selfishness. There's a little bit more comment added to all of it. Back up in verse 23, the man is banished to work the ground from which he was taken. But even in that, we have the strange grace that we talked about last week. God sending Adam out to see and feel that he is not God. So the Lord is saying, work the ground, Adam. I brought life out of the ground, but see if you can even raise up a crop. Work the ground, Adam. See the love that I raised and brought into existence. Adam, can you do the same? So the grace is this. God drives Adam out of the garden, a place of fullness, into a very 
frightening frontier, a place that will be very inhospitable, a place of emptiness, to preach to Adam the good news. Adam, I created you for this, to share in my fullness, not to find some other fullness to satisfy yourself with. And all of that gives to us the answer of one of life's deepest, most difficult questions. Why is it that God sometimes takes things away from us so that He can be our fullness? He takes away from us the things that we wrongly love and rely on so that He can be our fullness the way He has always intended to be. The question is, Where do you go when you've been shut out of a garden like that? In fact, that's the story of the rest of Scripture. The rest of Israel's history is that of a people who have no place, even when they have real estate, they don't entirely belong there. Abraham is promised a land of vast territory, but Hebrews 13 says he never actually possessed it. He never got the deed to the place. At the end of Genesis, God's people are carried off into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And when they're cut free, they wander homeless in the wilderness for 40 years. And when they finally enter the promised land, the land is always disputed. Philistines come and try to take it. And Assyrians and Babylonians and countless other tribes, and even in the New Testament, when the people are living in the land, the land isn't ruled by them. It's governed by the global Roman Empire. They are people without a place. And people without a home. And then there's this old prophecy that hardly anyone takes notice of. It's the kind of prophecy that's kept on the back shelf in the basement of some dank library, and you have to brush away centuries of dust just to get at it and dig it out. Bethlehem, of all places, the prophecy says, will be the place of God's great blessing. Bethlehem, nine kilometers south of Jerusalem, five miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem, nowhere near as exciting or prominent or important as the capital city. Whenever I hear of Bethlehem, I think of Mount Airy, North Carolina. Mount Airy is this sleepy little mountain town. Its claim to fame is it was the hometown of Andy Griffith. And he patterned Mayberry after this little town. And every year in October, when the leaves turn and the air turns crisp, the town hosts a homecoming festival called Mayberry Days. And people from all over come for a weekend celebrating the Mayberry of the television series and the real-life version that inspired it. We went one year just to see what it was like. And I asked around with some of the locals, so tell me, does Andy ever come back for this? And they all said the same thing. Never. We haven't heard from Andy since he went to Hollywood. 
Haven't seen him since. It's kind of like Bethlehem. The best thing that ever happened in Bethlehem is that David came from Bethlehem and went off to be king. But Bethlehem and Mount Airy are the kinds of places most people want to be from. And nobody's trying to get to. These aren't the places that people talk about. They're not the places that make the news. They're not printed up in the travel brochures. Nothing significant ever happens in places like this. But God says through the prophet Micah, one significant thing is going to happen here. One very significant thing would take place in the village of Bethlehem. By the way, you probably wouldn't like Bethlehem if you were to go there now. A small city, 32,000 permanent residents. It's a Palestinian town. It sits in the West Bank. It does not sit inside Israel proper. The political situation of Bethlehem is fragile and dangerous. The Palestinian Authority has ruled Bethlehem since 1995, but by local law, it's required that the mayor of Bethlehem must be a Christian. And then back in 2002, Israel walled the city in on three sides. It's a city cut off from the rest of the world by a 26-foot-high barrier made of cement slabs and fences and sandbags and barbed wire and guard posts, checkpoints, watchtowers. And it was built because the Israeli military claims that many suicide bombers and terrorists were traced to that city. The wall has been so problematic that just in the last year, 50 restaurants and 400 shops and 26 hotels have closed. The unemployment rate is at 20% and climbing. And one Christian resident says, Jesus Christ wouldn't be able to leave Bethlehem today unless he showed a magnetic ID card and a work permit and his thumbprint. And this city is the hometown of of lasting peace. And then there is the tourism. During December, the population doubles. Christian observers and pilgrims come from all over. Merchants hawk all kinds of religious souvenirs, souvenirs that would turn your stomachs. And you wouldn't like the Church of the Nativity. They say that church is built right over top of the site where Jesus was born. But to see the place, you have to walk down narrow flights of stone steps, through tight corridors, through sub-basement after sub-basement after sub-basement, until finally you come to this place where in the floor there is a 14-point silver star, gaudy thing, ugly thing, laid into the stone tile, marking the spot where Jesus was born, but it's so heavily hung with ornamentation and brocades, you can't even see it. You have to crouch low to look under curtains just to see the spot. And this is what the prophecy was promising? A city under military rule, a city divided, a tourist trap, church... O little town of Bethlehem sounds more like O troubled town 
of Bethlehem? How did the prophecy fall flat? It didn't. But to be clear, the prophecy is not that we will all move to Bethlehem and live happily ever after. The prophecy says something comes out of Bethlehem to find us. What it actually says is, there are many who rise up to strike God on the cheek, meaning they dismiss Him. They have scorn and derision for Him. They hate Him. The enemies of unbelief are against Him and they surround us. But our help does not come from the city of troops. Jerusalem, the big impressive city to the north, will not be our salvation. Our help comes from Bethlehem. But Bethlehem is so small that nobody takes it seriously. God's choosing of Bethlehem means that He will not forget us in our smallness. But He raises up for us one who will be a shepherd, one who will gather us in the strength of the Lord. And we will dwell. That says something of place. We will dwell secure with Him. And He'll be great to the ends of the earth. And He will be our peace. And there's one more clue. It's in the name of the place. Bethlehem means house of bread. Originally, it housed a large bakery that served the entire region. It was not a cosmopolitan city. It was a blue-collar town. It was a baker's town. Most of the workforce walked around dusted with flour much of the time. It was known for its bread. But the one born there is the bread that God wants to feed you with. The one born in this city is the bread God wants to satisfy you with. The one born here is the bread that God wants to comfort you with. Some of you may think that's a reach, but you're forgetting John 6 where Jesus calls Himself the bread that has come down from heaven. And according to Jesus, Bethlehem, the house of bread, was never truer to its name than when His birth took place inside the village limits. Jesus is bread to fill our aching need for closeness with God again, for unshakable belonging and unwavering acceptance and undying welcome. According to his, his own comment on Himself, His work, Jesus is the bread given to comfort our hearts, worried and sick over questions like, can anyone ever truly know me? And knowing me, can anyone truly love me? In order to love me, can anyone truly forgive me? By Jesus' own admission, He's the bread given to satisfy us, to cut our hunger, because He is love that meets us in our weakness. He comes and finds us in our straying, death-addicted flesh And He fills us with His desire for purifying strength. And He ruins us for every other false rival lover. So the Gospel in all of this comes to this. 
Our Eden of emptiness is undone with incarnate fullness. The fullness that came in the softness and the tenderness and the closeness of an infant. The fullness that suffered redeeming agony on a cross. The fullness of gloating love that emptied out a tomb. It's not a place on a map that's been promised, but it's the presence of God and Messiah wherever we may find ourselves. Our place is with the unexpected Savior whose character is shown in this unexpected hometown. Christmas was two days ago, so I can tell you this now. But one night before Christmas arrived, Jennifer and I put our kids to bed, and then we got out all their gifts, and we played with them. And it was great. I haven't had so much fun in a long time. And the days would mark off as the month was passing, and Christmas Day was getting closer and closer. And Jennifer would say, it's time to wrap the gifts. And I would say, no, 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 not yet. I want to do that all again. I want to get the the gifts out and play with them again. Finally, Jennifer put her foot down and said, we've waited too long. It's time to wrap them all. And then I couldn't wait for Christmas morning to come because I couldn't wait for my kids to get up and enjoy what we had gotten them. We had enjoyed those things so much. And the theological truth in it is this. God gives us what pleases Him. He gives to us what He takes immense pleasure in. He doesn't give us something that is embarrassing or disappointing, something that's useless. He gives us what pleases His perfect heart, and it should please us too. And if it doesn't, it's not in the gift, and it's not in the giver, it's in the twisted heart of the recipient. But still He gives us what is of such great value to Himself that it should straighten out our crooked, twisted hearts. We lost a garden we couldn't keep, but we gained a Savior we can't lose. And we don't have to sneak back up to the edge of Eden anymore and look inside longingly and cry with Adam because Christ is our paradise now. Jesus is our pleasure ground now. And what that means is, Jesus fills us with all the good trees. It's what we sing in the third verse of Joy to the World. No more let the sins and the sorrows that flow from me come uncontested. And the thorns that my heart sows, don't let them overtake the ground anymore. It's time to uproot the thorn bushes. And it's time for them to be replaced. And Jesus replaces those thorn bushes with the trees that bear the fruit that glorifies God. In other words, all the parts of God that are most pleasing to Himself, all those things are alive and growing in me now, coming to maturity and ripeness. Most days I can't even fill myself with things that would please me. But to think of it, God is insistent to fill me with the parts of Himself that are most pleasing to Him. And even the trees that were prohibited are ours in Christ. Do you realize that you now appropriately participate in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because of Jesus? 
Now in Jesus, you can say yes to all the things that are good according to the heart of God. Now in Jesus, you can say no to all the things that are called evil by the heart of God. And even the tree of life is for you. There is a piece of fruit from that tree reserved for you. And one day you'll eat it and you'll be stuck, locked in sinless perfection that can never fall, never offend God again. Jesus is our well-watered ground. He pours the river of His Spirit into us. We're no longer barren and parched. No longer thirsty. Now we're carried away on the current of the Gospel. Even in the times we try to swim upstream and against it, we're still carried in His Gospel. Jesus is the land of our wealth and riches. In Him we have things we don't even have words for. The mysteries of God, the desires of God, are ours to grow in and enjoy. And He changes our work. You forget this. I forgot it this week. And now even our work isn't done in futility and frustration. Our work feels like that and looks like that and takes that shape when we do it in selfishness. When we do it with self-love. But Jesus has come to save us from all of that. And the work He's given us to do is the work of ministry. We're no longer building our false kingdoms. We're building His kingdom. The kingdom that overcomes the ruin of Eden with the perfections of God. The kingdom that overcomes our sin. And yes, it overcomes sin in daily, close combat. But it still overcomes sin and replaces sin with the strength of grace and restoration. In the kingdom that Jesus is building with us and in us and through us, the lost are found and the dead are raised and the shattered are mended and restored and put back together and the sleeping and the lazy and the flaky are awakened. And Jesus says, you have work to do. Not toil, but work. No matter how it feels to you, it's work that always brings the desired outcome. My kingdom won't fail. All of that is what's wrapped into this prophecy for us. The prophecy doesn't just speak of a birth that would take place. It was spoken and written with you in mind. These are the things that the incarnation wants for us. So look, I'm not sure how to tell you to do this, but I'm going to tell you anyway because the text requires it. You struggle with it and you work it out on your own. And as you gain insights into this, share them with each other and tell me what you've learned in the process. But the passage, the prophecy, is calling you to be satisfied with Jesus. The Father is entirely satisfied with Him, so you're called to fix your satisfaction on Him. Settle for nothing less. Settle for no one else. Stir your hearts 
to preach against the deception of all your other senses. Go into a room in the house by yourself and shut the door and say it out loud. Say it to yourself as you drive along in the car. And don't worry about the other people who look in on you as you speak to yourself. Say it out loud until you feel your heart turning. Until you feel yourself beginning to believe it. And say to yourself, I can only be satisfied with more of Jesus, not less. I can only be satisfied with more of His love. More of His power. More of His will. I can only be satisfied with more of His renewal. More of His forgiveness, calling for more repentance. More mortification of sin, putting my sin to death. More sanctification, more rising in holiness. I can only be satisfied with more of Him. And then, stir your hearts to pray. Make me satisfied only with Him. Now listen... You're going to lose some things you think you can't go without. But you'll gain what you can't lose. Make me satisfied only with Him. In all of this, what we're hearing is, instead of looking to Christ to satisfy us with other things, which is what most Christians do, instead of looking to Jesus to satisfy us with things of our choosing, We're asking to be satisfied with Jesus because He is the satisfaction. Skeptics, the only thing that God has promised us is to give us His love in Jesus. So what this means for you is if you are not looking for Jesus, then you're not moving in the right direction. But if you're wanting to know more of Jesus, then you're moving toward God's promises. Promises that He vows to keep. Promises that won't disappoint you. So pray, show me who you are. Teach me your love in Jesus. You're not overcommitting yourself. You're saying, show me. Teach me. Allow me to see. Allow me to know. I love the story of David Goldman. Goldman is the American who some years ago married a beautiful Brazilian girl. And they started a family. They had a baby boy and everything seemed to be perfect. And then five years later or so, while Goldman was away on a business trip, his wife left him, took their son, and moved back to be with her family in Brazil. He called after her and pleaded with her on the phone. We can work this out. Come back and be restored to me and be restored to our marriage. But she refused. She told him that she was getting on with her life and that he should do the same. She divorced him, remarried. And in the meantime, she refused him any visitation rights with their son. And then suddenly she died. Custody of the child did not revert back to Goldman the way you might expect. The stepfather insisted on keeping the boy with him 
her Brazilian family insisted that the child's place was there with them. Meanwhile, the Brazilian courts did nothing to help. So for five years, this father suffered and mourned, and he traveled hoping for some visitation with his child. And he lobbied, and he traveled to seek justice from Brazilian authorities. And every time, he was sent away empty-handed and broken-hearted. But he never gave up. Love cannot give up. He knew that the child's home was to be with him. He knew that the love, the place that this child was supposed to have in this world came from what he would pour out on the boy. He knew that his unique calling in the world was to be fullness for the child. And then on Christmas Eve, on Thursday morning of this week, David Goldman boarded a plane for home with his son. The courts ruled in favor of the father. And finally, his son's place was with his father again. Now your story plays out just like that one. From the garden to Bethlehem to wherever you are now, from paradise to emptiness to fullness again, And Jesus makes Himself for us all three places. Without the love of Jesus, that's the place that we're desperately trying to leave behind us and forget. Apart from His love is the place that we're desperately trying to escape. Filled by Him is the place we're dying to get to. And satisfied with His love, Satisfied with nothing else, satisfied with His love, is the most surprising place of all. But that's the place where you were always meant to live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, too long we have been satisfied with the emptiness of our exile. And too long we have been satisfied with other lovers and with other things. Now, Lord, we ask you to turn our hearts. And we ask you to fill us with the gifts that you have for us the gifts of your fullness in place of all the emptiness that we've settled on and convinced ourselves would satisfy us. Over time, over time, these things will take, we tell ourselves. And they never bring us joy and they never bring us peace. And they never gather us to God. And they never shepherd us and allow us to dwell secure. So finally, in this year ahead of us, will you teach us the joy of being satisfied only in the Savior? Allow us to say to ourselves, I can only be satisfied with more of Him, not less. And move us to stir our own hearts to pray. Let me be satisfied only with Him. 
and in the things you take away from us. We hurt. So help us to believe that even this is for our good because you're giving to us the fullness in Christ that cannot be lost. Oh, Lord Jesus, undo the wreckage of Eden that has lived in us and give to us the fullness that the heart of God has insisted on for us from eternity. And we know the joy and the thanksgiving, the full love and the riches that are found only in Christ. We ask all of these name, all these things in your name, which is not a false name. It is the name that has sworn itself to a love and care we would never have designed or chosen for ourselves, but a love and care so infectious we want never to be without it. Grant us this. And accept our praise for it, we ask. Through your work on our behalf.